Thanks for joining us for another edition of the Pod of the West Wind. This is Bob Linscott filling in for Matt Gallinson, who is on assignment. But uh, seriously, Mac, thank you for this podcast. It's amazing. Thank you for letting me be a guest host. Uh, I really love the work that you're doing with this. So we've got a pretty amazing show for you today. So there is a story that many folks have probably heard. Uh, and we're going to be sharing some of the untold details around this. And this happens to be about a particular morning in July of 1980, when the entire camp, all the campers, all the staff disappeared, completely disappeared for several hours. So uh, if you want to know what happened, where they went to, and what was behind that, or should I say, who was behind that, you'll need to stay tuned. I've got the one and only here. This man needs no introduction. Former Commodore of the CYC and former staff member and has someone who has worn many hats over, over his many, many years, many, 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 many years. The one and only the iconic Larry Golding. Larry, thank you so much and welcome to the show. Bob, it is just a delight to be here with you. We go way back. Absolutely. And, uh, uh, the statute of limitations on our respective uh, knowledge of each other is, uh, is passed, so uh, I feel, feel comfortable speaking freely with you tonight. For folks that might not know you, um, can you give, give everyone a little bit of sense of, of your connection with KBN and how far back that stretches? Okay, well, it goes back to 1973, Nick Latham's first year as director, and I joined as assistant head of the sailing department in 73. Who was the head then? Mike you? Mayers. Oh, yeah. Head of sailing. Of course. Uh, I was the assistant head of sailing, a very fancy title for a three-man department, and John Morris was the junior staff, and there was a three-man department. John and I met in June of 1973, and he is still my closest friend, um, along with Stephen Ehrenberg, who came up from Boston with me to try that adventuresome summer in camp. So I did four years during my college summers, and then went to work. And then the lead-in for this story is that Nick Latham asked me and John to come up as guest instructors in 80, 81, and 82. So I have a sort of a second term, if you will, as a counselor after having been a loan officer at Bank of Boston, and I came up to camp and taught sailing. It was a great time. Then I became one of those alumni sitting around the dock on a, on a given weekend, uh, and then I became a family camper, and then the parent of a camper, Speaking of which, I, I do want to say that when you say parent of a camper, because I think a lot of folks are going to listen to your last name and say, that sounds really familiar. Where have I heard that? What's that? So wh what's the connection there with a lot of your last name? Well, when my son was born in 1991, that summer he came to camp and has been at camp every summer since then, except for this one, unfortunately. And I, as I often said, and of all the titles I've had at Camp Cadian, my favorite one is Elliot's dad. And I'm right. happy to be and very proud to be Elliot Golding's father. He chose not to follow in my footsteps in the sailing department, but has done a wonderful job running the waterfront. And uh, I'm Absolutely. very proud of him. Yeah, I've, it's been so much a pleasure for many of us who have watched him grow up all his years as camper all the way up to uh, taking on so many roles. His staff, and uh, I see so much of you in him. 
But um, I, I just want to say before we get into this, so for some of our uh, listeners, every era at Kabian is slightly different, you know, and, and they all have those unique characters to them. And, and I think back for, for, I would love for you to help me give folks a little bit of a sense of, of what Kabian was like in the, in the late 70s, early 80s. And I, I would begin that by saying it's, you know, things that come to my mind. So much of the music we listen to, I think I hear just Led Zeppelin echoing through camp and Freebird and, and the, the Who and uh, Rolling Stones and all of that and Skinnerd that was going on. I remember, you know, I think of tube socks. I think of the, the <laughs> steamer trunks that we all put our stuff right, in. Right. What else would, how else would you characterize those, those years of uh, late 70s, early 80s? Well, it's really funny. I think of Kurt Ehrenberg and his guitar. Yes, yeah, yeah. Folk music. I think of uh, Crosby, Stills and Nash played on, on acoustic guitar uh, more than, you know, anything uh, more sinister than that. And, it, uh, it's funny you say about the, the guitar because I, <laughs> I, when I hear Morning Has Broken by Cat Stevens, yeah. immediately I go right to a pine point where um, Aaron Metzger was yeah. played on the guitar and sang it. He probably only did it once and for the rest of yeah. my life, I can yeah. connect those two moments in my head. To, to teach Your Children uh, by Crosby, Stills, Nash. I, I have an image and uh, it may be totally Conflated of Kurt playing that at the waterfront or at a pine point or something like that. So um, by the late 70s, early 80s, camp was, you know, was up and running. That 73, that Nick's first year, you know, the camp had been through a tough time. Uh, yeah. It was a rebuilding effort. Nick hired a bunch of people and said, we're doing camp. And John Porter was very much there. His, he had certain, you know, disciplines, you know, safety, but also what he called organized chaos, which I took to heart. And really? Yeah, yeah. You know, so he, there was a gr great group of people who just came and said, okay, it's my job. This is what we're going to do. We pitched in and we, we improvised. And so by the late 70s, you know, again, I was there 73 to 76. By you know, 80, he, we, he had a succession going. Yeah. We had, yeah. you know, the you know, the Corinthian Yacht Club was essentially self-perpetuating that by 1980, Will Catan was Commodore having, one of the things that Nick had said to me, he said, look, in the old days, we never had to hire a sailing instructor. They came up from within, I want you to do that. So John and I taught, we had, Doug Latham was after John and then Roger Hallowell was after him and then uh, Will Catan, and then I don't know the order, but Don Stelly and Robinson, and you know, we had a uh, yeah. Funkhauser, we had this whole succession of people who ha had grown up in the in the CYC. Absolutely. And so, so things like that had taken hold. So, camp itself was, you know, was established, you know, the census was full, and it, it, so it was a, it was a really you, we were in the renaissance, if you will, of the Cavian experience, which really has provided the fuel you know, to this very day, I think. I think what, one of the things that really stands out to, in, in my mind, I was only there, my, my first year was Uncle John's last year, 78. So I, I have few memories of, of seeing him around there. But so of course, for me, as a, my first years as, as staff, many years, my, many of my first years as staff was under Nick. And just the trust that they always, when Nick and Bill had in us. And I, I've seen that carry on. I'm so glad that carries on because they, they bring people on board and, and put them in these roles of cabin staff and activity staff and just say, we, we trust you, you know what you're doing. We bring these skills out and it's been great to see that carried throughout and it really starting back in those years. 
I want to get back to what you were saying, organized chaos. So yeah, let's get back to our, our situation here. We, we left everyone hanging here. We left talking about this infamous story about how an entire, the entire camp, all the campers and all the staff disappeared from Cavian. So, mm -hmm. so let's set this up. So, so this was a, it had to have been a huge undertaking. So can you back up a little bit, like where did this idea come from? Do you remember how, it, how the oh, initial brainchild? I do. John, John Porter's organized chaos doctrine really was great. In fact, my first year, 73, we, there was a good group of people, a good number that stayed over for the second month. So change overnight was sort of a weird time. Coming so in. I got a group of people together and we went Christmas caroling. We went Christmas caroling <laughs> from cabin to cabin and we made a hell of a racket. And all of a sudden I hear coming from the shop John Porter's voice, Larry Golden? And I said, yes, come down here. So he and Ed Grant were having, were sitting in, in the shop. He said, this is irresponsible. Uh, you're the trusted staff member. You're, you're the oldest person in the group. I said, sir, with all due respect, I'm the youngest person in this group. And I'm just following your doctrine of organized chaos, which you so faithfully instilled on us at, at pre-camp. And I'm just doing my thing. He said, oh, very well, carry on. So th that's it. But uh, about, about th this story, uh, really 40 years ago this week, John Morris and I arrived at camp at the request of Nick Latham to help out in the sailing department while Mike Mayers was out of camp. And we got there, you know, camp has a certain rhythm. It has a certain buzz, a certain, that is palpable. It's the, the buzz in the dining hall. And John and I got there and it was, something was off. It was like the camp was misfiring. And I don't know whether, what it was, you know, I don't know what, the, what had happened. It may have just been some bad you know, weather. Uh, it may have been, I don't know. But camp was just off. So we went to dinner that night at the Bittersweet. And I'm saying, you know, there's something wrong here. We got to do something. If not us, who? If not now, when? And I said, when I was a boy at Camp Winnebago in Fayette, Maine, and, camp, and I created Camp Winnebago where I learned how to camp and sail and canoe and do the, you know, the, the camp things with some really wonderful experiences, several of which I wound up transporting to, to Cabian. But there was a British sailing counselor, the fellow who taught me to sail, and he wanted to play a prank on the director of Winnebago. So the night before visiting day, he launched something called Operation Jolly Green Giant, which involved the mass evacuation of the camp out of sight, in fact, off the property early in the morning of visiting day so that when the director came to the dining hall, there was no camp. And that really, I was 12 at the time and it just had stuck with me. Yeah. So now I'm 25, I'm saying, now it's my turn to, so I told this story about, to my, and I know John was there, I don't remember who else was in the group, and they said, what do we have to do? Literally over dinner, you're telling the story, and then you guys are gonna set it into motion right away. That yeah, right, right, so in terms of advanced planning, yeah, the, the advanced planning went from nine o'clock to midnight. So the basic plan involved removing the entire camp 
population without the director being aware of what was going on. But we're moving at that time, we had a full set, we had 125 kids that we had to move. Yeah. And again, it's nine o'clock at night, Reveille's at 7.30 the next morning, this all has to be done. So if I can just sort of recall the steps we took, the first dispatch was to Sue Kudenklan, our nurse, to borrow 10 first aid kits. We were going on a camping trip and we didn't want to be exposed. We went to the CIT's interns cabin and said, we need you six interns to guard the road. We're going to use the path that runs from the lodge to senior ball field so people get into the woods as fast as possible. But that's not a well-marked trail. We need you to you know, take intervals of 100 yards along that. And so, so the CITs were given their orders. And they also carried you know, first aid kits in case someone tripped. We had to get to Dick Pratt and tell him that breakfast would be an hour late that morning. And finally, we had to get to the bugler, who I believe was a Robinson. I think it was Bill, but I, I'm not sure. And tell him to blow all the regular calls from the Wildcats cabin, but immediately upon the last note of second call to hightail it up to the senior ball field. And that is what we did between nine o'clock and midnight on, and I want to say it was this you know, coming Saturday for, for want of a better fix in time. And, that's, and that, that was the amount of advanced planning. Wow. So, so I, have to, I have to interrupt you too. That, the, the, the one thing that, that you might have forgotten, I surely did. So that was my CIT year. So I was one of those people like, you know, standing by the trail or whatever like yeah. that. But pretty soon there seemed to be quite a bit of chaos up on the ball field. So I got pulled up into the ball field because a lot of the staff were tired. Probably a lot of the staff had been up planning the prank all night and just got into the field and laid down and went back to sleep. So several of us <laughs> CIT said to go create these games instantly to keep the kids busy because it was, it was like, they were up there for a good long time before going right. down. I think breakfast was normally at 7.30. We, we, we basically took an hour, yeah. To, yeah. which was enough time for, for people to, you know, to, to, for the maximum effect uh, right. uh, at the other end. So we, in the morning, we woke each kid up and we said, bring Mad Libs, bring a deck of cards, bring a Frisbee, we're pulling a prank. And not once, but probably a half a dozen times, the response was, who's the prank on? And we said, Nick, great, I'm in. <laughs> so, you know, everybody was in at, and at, at 6.30, you know, we, we started this evacuation and we, we did it by cabin. It was like going to assembly, but we got up to the ball field and we, did a, a no bugle calls, but we did assembly. We counted off. We had all the the lions. We had all the the wolves. We had all the you know the woodchucks. You know we had everybody there. We said, okay, do not leave the field. Take a nap, play cards, play frisbee. We're going to have another assembly in a half hour, and that's what you do. But yeah, you're probably right. You probably had some people saying, "Okay, I need to sleep this one off." Yeah, yeah, the, oh, they were, yeah. I think probably the people that were working with you organizing the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the only thing that I remember slightly differently, and this could be just okay, I mean, could be you're younger than I am. You, yeah, you could yeah. be right. Yeah, I thought the bugler had stayed down there because I seemed. I thought I remembered us all 
you hushing us to really listen to the call of the right. flag being raised. And that was such an eerie thing, knowing that there was an assembly going on and that we were not there. It was, right. the kids loved that part of it. Yeah, no, that, that was it. The bugler, the bugler at seven o'clock, the bugler was the only person in camp. Yeah. And yeah, yeah it's in the right. And so I knew the time and it, at that appointed hour, everybody was quiet because that was when you know, the director and the assistant director would be starting to move towards Damn, the assembly yeah. area. So we had to be quiet of all the sort of stage managed parts of it. Most of it was about safety and didn't want to you know, annoy Dick Pratt by having people late for breakfast. So he knew he could you know, take his time making the scrambled eggs. I never knew the detail before that this was hatched and launched, you know, and executed all, you know, in a matter of a number of hours, but it would not have worked if you had planned this way out days in advance because it, it would have gotten out. It would have totally been leaked yeah. out by yeah. someone that was just, you know, meaning well, but got so excited about it. The next part is my favorite memory of that. So, so tell us about what yeah. happened after the, oh. after they did assembly and then, uh, okay. And then so then we, we had some time. And again, the senior ball field was picked because it was a good sound barrier that I could, you know, have kids giggling and playing and, you know, it, it wouldn't be obvious from the assembly area or even from the dining hall what was going on. We, there was a counselor who I believe was a drama counselor who played yeah. the flute. Played the Donna, flute, Donna the, Boyton, Donna okay. Boyton, yeah. She played the flute or the fife and I had her come up and we taught all of the children the Colonel Bogey March, which in that famous scene in the bridge over the River Kwai, the prisoners march to the bridge whistling, you know, it's sort of in defiance of, of their captors. And so I said, we're gonna march down the camp road at, again, 8.30, and everybody, 125 kids and whatever staff are gonna be whistling the Colonel Bogey March from Bridge Over the River Kwai, and then just march into their dining room and just pretend like nothing had happened. And that was the ditch. So we spent about a half hour with Donna played it on the flute and we, we sort of did the, you know, the, the parts so that by zero hour, you know, 8.30, we were ready to go. Yeah, and, and they marched. I love it. And they marched. They marched, marched to, all the way. We yeah, took the fun. assembly. We, took the, we did another assembly. We counted off everybody made sure that no one had wandered off with chasing a butterfly. And, you know, in cabin order, we marched down from, you know, the senior ball field down the camp road and right into the dining hall, whistling the Colonel Bogey March. You know, we didn't lose anybody. No one got stung by a bee. Everybody got their food. And it was a great uh, moment. It was a great moment. I remember everyone marching in and we got them to, to go in, go in the door and march directly to their seat as if, right. like you said, as if nothing was, you Yeah, know. It, was, it was like, I said, from, from your standpoint, it's just a normal day. It just started late. And yeah, and it's up, up to Nick and Bill to, to figure out what, what just happened. And that was it. So it was a childhood memory of mine. It was like, this is really great. And it was a time I just needed to bring my goal was to just sort of turn up the amp on, on camp and, and, and sort of get that sort of buzz back. And, you know, I'm very proud of that. <laughs> we, we pulled it off. Well, the, you know, whatever it took, 40 years later, yeah. you know, so we're still, still talking about that as one of the most legendary pranks. But I did want to ask you too, I know that Mac was talking with Carl and mm. Jim recently about one of, the, one of the pranks they did when they stole all the shoes. That was one a, a couple episodes yeah. ago. 
on the same episode is when he talked with Bill French about Nick's legendary uh, prank of getting the, the bug on the, on, the, on the crib. But with Carl and Jim, you know, they were talking about, you know, Camp has had, has had a history of pranks, you know, over the years. And over the years, we have begun to work out a way where it's possible to do pranks that are safe and they don't hurt anybody, no one's targeted, and it's fun and everyone's in on it, you know? And I've seen that kind of take shape. I remember one Bill Ricker's big contribution is, you know, don't forget, you know, if there's one person that's not in on it, then it's really, it's targeting that person and that can be just some emotional hurt. But did you think about things like that? Did you think about how is this prank gonna be received when you guys were uh, hatching the idea and was that a concern at all for you? Well, the thing that I had remembered most about Operation Jolly Green Giant in its 1968 version was that it was just fun, just pure fun. And it went back to that spirit of John Porter's organized chaos. And yeah. this was highly organized, but it was, you know, if you, if you dissect it, it was totally chaotic. So, I mean, I saw, yes, I mean, I was 25. I was, you know, a responsible banker. Uh, I, I was a little more mature than I was when John Porter had yelled at me for being irresponsible in 1973. But I, I think in the back of my head, he said, this includes everybody or, you know, or no one. It was an easy thing to check out. We didn't have to worry about it. It was sort of like a given. And then it just fell from there. And I see, I see that too, because it was, it is, it, it's funny. It, it was you know, definitely a prank, but yet it was a KB, it was a moment. It was a real moment that is etched in it. And it, and it was successful because it, it achieved what you wanted it to. Cause you remember throughout your whole life when that happened to you at your camp and then to bring that here and, and people are still talking about that now and, and now hearing more, more details about that, which I think people will, will enjoy. And it wasn't targeted, you know, it, was, it, was, it wasn't fun. And, and even though it was directed at, at Nick and Bill there, knowing that, that they had the capacity to really think of that as it was not a malicious or whatever, it was just a, a creative and fun idea. And the thing that, uh, you know, now that we, we've spent so many years and such hard work at KBN on, on getting accredited yeah. and things like that, having yeah. all these standards, the fact that you're even back then in 1980 thinking about, well, we need to have first aid kits up there because there's lots of kids gathering and there could be bee stinging, you know, allergies. And that was great. <laughs> That's great. Despite popular impression, I was more responsible than, but in terms of the impact, I never, because, you know, I never saw Uncle Howie's reaction in 1968, nor did I really project what Bill and Nick were going to do I just imagined, and for me, that moment that you remember so vividly, where I had everybody be quiet while we heard the bugles from this faraway camp that we were supposed to be at, but we weren't. We were beyond watching. But I heard later, I think it was that day, from Bill Ricker. And he came to me and he said, Nick and I were walking to the assembly area, and there was no slamming doors, there were no counselors screaming at the kid in the third bunk to wake up Johnny, it's first call. There was no slamming of the doors at the college or the, it was just dead silence. And he said, I looked at Nick and Nick looked at me and we both said, Golden. <laughs> yeah. And I said, mission accomplished. Ah. <laughs> okay, so it had my signature on it without, yeah my having left a calling card. And 
to me, that was like, okay, you know, if I'm never invited back, <laughs> so be it. But that was the, if you will, the, the denouement was, was hearing that, that, you know, I got them. And it, it wasn't like they spent, they spent about five minutes figuring out who did it. And then they figured, well, I'll bring them back. So they, they think they had, went and had a cup of coffee and, you know, and I think, you know, the thing is, that I was there throughout the whole, all the 80s. And uh, I think some of us that, that did other pranks, uh, you got the credit for that one because Ricker would still, it was like, it was a Seinfeld moment. Of with him. It was like a, a prank would happen and Bill would, under his breath, would go, Golding. <laughs> well, I've never heard that before, but I'm honored. I, I, I can think of no higher compliment to be paid. Um, Larry, this was fantastic spending this time talking with you. And anyone that knows Larry Golding knows that if I don't shut him up now, we will be here. Oh, <laughs> Laura told you to say that. Yeah, uh, yeah no. <laughs> Mac wants his show back. <laughs> okay. Mac, um, Mac, uh, thank you for 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 seeding the airwaves to uh, to Bob and I. Bob and I go way back, and uh, this was a, this was a, just a blast to talk about. It was a lot of fun, and, and hopefully, if, if we're lucky, we may get some of the other folks that were there present at that time uh, to, to join in and, and reminisce about that, uh, about that day. Okay, we just heard from Larry Golding, the mastermind behind one of the legendary pranks at KBN. I thought it might be fun to hear from someone on the other side of the prank. So as you heard from Larry, the two people who are lovingly targeted by this endeavor were Nick Latham, director, and Bill Ricker, assistant director. Sadly, Nick is no longer with us, but I did speak to Bill to get his take on the prank. Let's listen. So I am thrilled. I am sitting here with another legendary Cabian figure, the one and only Bill Ricker. Bill, it is a pleasure having you here on this podcast today and a great honor to spend this time with you. Can you give our listeners a little bit uh, about your background, your connection with Cabian and your years that you were there and your role these days? Oh my gosh. Well, John <laughs> Porter got in touch with me back in 1957 wow. and said, we need a nature counselor. Are you interested? I had been a nature counselor at another camp for a year and happily joined Cabian. Uh, I was with John from 1958 to 1962 when I left to go to college then returned for the first year of family camping with uh, Nick back in 1973, was two years as a family camper, and Nick and I really clicked. So I joined the staff in 1975, I believe, and continued working as an assistant director with Nick, which was supposed to be for one year, <laughs> for 25 years, leaving in uh, 1999 or 2000, around 1995, uh, I joined the Board of Trustees and have been on the Board of Trustees since then. So all told, I think I've been uh, a part of Cabian for a little over 50 years, wow. remembering the 25th anniversary, the 50th anniversary, the 75th anniversary, and looking forward to the 100th. No, I missed the 25th. That's right. It was the 50th, 75th, and 100th. Excellent. Excellent. Well, I just have to say, Bill, that there are so many of us that went under the ranks, you know, with you at the helm being running the CIT program, which is now the intern program, 
But there are so many of us out in the world today that their whole concept of leadership came from you. I think you taught us so much about the world, about the 10 steps of discipline, about so many things. And, and I think uh, we look back with such fondness to the care and attention that you spent. And it's funny, to, for, in my mind, like, yes, you were the assistant director, but I think so many of us just remember the focus that you spent on the, the CIT program and training of us and, and so many scenarios that we would go through. It was incredible. Well, so, the CITs, now the interns are the future of camp. And there are some times when a, a camper is not quite what we would hope uh, a counselor to be. But yeah. given that year of experience and training, uh, they become stars. I am just so proud to see so many past counselors who have gone through the program and have learned a bit of what I might have been able to offer. Absolutely. And after the one, one, one side story, I'd say, so I remember my camper years. That, that, you know, being up late at night talking and laughing in a cabin, and it was a minute that, that uh, we would smell your cigar smoke, or the, I'm sorry, the pipe smoke. It's Ricker, it's Ricker, quiet, you know. And then to come to find out years later, you, you, you told us that you would kind of circle around, you would on purpose waft it through, and then I forgot what you were doing to try and catch us in the act of things. Well, I, I, would, uh, I would give a puff of smoke downwind, and by the time it got through the cabin and had people realize that I was outside, I was already two cabins away. Every single cabin thought I was sitting outside theirs. And I also knew which screen doors squeaked and which ones I could enter without a noise. I can remember one particular panther cabin when they were as rowdy as can be. And I walked in the back door, black as could be, not a light to be seen, got into the middle of the cabin with no one knowing I was there, and then sang, I think it's time to settle down. Probably gave every single kid a heart attack there. <laughs> it was probably my my Panthers cabin because we were right. I was in there with Andy Heath, a whole bunch of a uh, whole whole bunch of rebel rousers in there, and Adam Hirschfield, and yeah. But I asked you here to to uh, share your insights. So I just spent some time with the one and only Larry Golding, as you can imagine, uh, ah, yeah. <laughs> telling the story of when he uh, pulled the prank and made the entire uh, camp disappear. So I would love it if you could give our listeners your side of the story, since that prank was initially targeted at, at you and Nick. And so you are the recipients of the whole thing. So can you take us back to that, that morning and share what, what you remember of that day? Yeah. Uh, so I had been there some five years. Uh, every single morning, Nick and I would meet up and walk to the assembly grounds in time for uh, the raising of the flag and uh, uh, counting heads. Uh, we arrived, of course, on this one particular morning uh, to find no one there. We had heard the bugle, but no one was present. So I took a quick look in the lion's cabin and the wildcats. Uh, nobody was there. Uh, Nick said, well, we have a fun time afoot there somewhere in camp and let's go have breakfast ourselves. So the two of us walked back to the dining hall, 
not worried a bit because every counselor was responsible for their kids anyway, uh, believing a prank was afoot, we just went into the dining hall, got ourselves some cereal and a cup of coffee and sat down to enjoy ourselves. Lo and behold, uh, within several minutes, we heard this whistling from 110 boys and 30 staff coming, we later learned from the senior ball field, all whistling the bridge over the river Kwai. <laughs> uh, sure enough, they came led by Larry Golding through the dining hall doors, all the kids taking their places at their tables. I believe I was the one that rang the bell and said, oh, how nice to see you all. We missed you at assembly. And there was a tittering of uh, lots of fun and snickering and laughter throughout the dining hall. One of the things that made that prank such a fun prank is that everybody was involved. Nobody was hurt. The facility was not destroyed. Right. Uh, and everyone just had a good time. It just perked things up. There were other pranks that happened at camp that I dare say were not well thought through and uh, ended up with, well, on one occasion, so many lost flippers and sandals and shoes that uh, we never did sort them all out. Yeah. And we got some negative feedback from parents of of lost shoes. Yeah, uh, Mac. Mac did that story already on the on the pod uh, with uh, with Carl and, and uh, Jim Carl Metzger and Jim Camerlin, who were behind the the masterminds behind. Oh, them, oh. So. Yeah, they they're still feeling uh, quite guilty for those things and uh, and and still oh. paying off the lost shoes debt there. <laughs> well, so. there was the painting of the pig, which was probably the worst. Oh God, I remember that one. Yeah. yeah uh, we need not go into that to give anybody ideas. No, but I think that I think that it's it is interesting because there has been a consistent message over the years about you know what makes a good prank and and I think that comes into the mind because it it still creates a place when you can do it you're not targeting anybody as everyone's involved with it and it's you know it's funny and there's there's no harm and there's no harm physical harm or harm to the property then you can have fun with those things. And these are things that stay in, in people's minds when it's done well. You remember the morning that uh, we came to, uh, came to breakfast and the owl's cabin had taken all the chairs out of the dining hall. Oh yeah, remember table. that. We had breakfast outside and it was phenomenal. It was, yep. and then you said at the end of it, everyone was just thrilled with that. And then after assembly, after breakfast was over and all the announcements and you looked at the owls and like, you got some work to do now, put it all back the way it was. Yep. <laughs> and yep. they did, they did. They did. We couldn't put all those shoes back together again, though. Yeah. <laughs> you're not going to let the you're not going to let them down on those shoes, are you? <laughs> Can't let it go. I mean, seeing that pile in front of the lion's cabin, and then having the kids all dive into the pile looking for two of whatever they owned. Easily, a third of the kids never found both. Right, yeah, and and Carl was saying that, or either Carl or Jim was saying in the in the podcast that 
back in those days, there are only a certain number of types of shoes that, that people wore. So everyone had the same shoes that summer, all the kids, you know. <laughs> oh, sure. So sometimes kids went home with a size nine and a size six. Well, Bill, this was great. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts and your memories about that great legendary moment that happened uh, at KBM back in, in 1980. It was, a, it was a pleasure talking with you and going down memory lane here. Well, the physical plant of Cabian is so striking, so beautiful, so reminiscent uh, of everybody who returns to camp and comes down the camp road and immediately sees the dining hall and, and the lake behind it. There's a nostalgic feeling for the place. But what's most important to me is the friendships that I've made, the people that I've met. And even like you, Bob, if we don't get together all year round, or don't see each other for two years. Or in Andy von Meyerhaus's uh, situation, I hadn't seen Andy for 10 years. When we see each other again, it's as if we were never apart. Yeah. Our, our love, our feelings, and indeed love is something that has bound us together over the years. And that's what I will take to my grave. Absolutely. And that is what's going to get us through this pandemic, because I can't imagine, you know, none of us ever anticipated that Cavian would not be open for summer. And I, when Ken called me and told me, I cried. I wasn't even going to be able to be there this summer, but I just could not believe hearing yeah. those words. And yeah. But these bonds that you speak of, they're eternal. And one summer away is not going to tarnish any of that. Okay, yeah. my friend, my Thanks. dear friend. Take care. Thank you. Take care, Bill. See you. Bye-bye, everyone. So now you've, you've heard both sides of this classic Cavian prank, one that was well executed and lives on in the hearts and minds of all those who were Cavian back in 1980. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to Mac for letting me step in and host this episode. This is Bob Linscott signing off from the Pod of the West Wind Studios high on top of Mount Major. Stay tuned next week for another great episode. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.